The coronavirus pandemic has caused the greatest economic downturn since the Great Depression, but some people are doing very well out of this crisis. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos saw his personal wealth increase by $12 billion in a single day, while millions of people find themselves unemployed or on furlough. I'm David Blunt, and you're listening to the City Politics Podcast, a roundtable discussion on politics, international relations, and current affairs. Today, we'll give you the city view on COVID-19 and global inequality. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the City Politics Podcast. I'm David Blunt, lecturer in international politics. I'm joined with my co-host, Constantine Vossing, lecturer in international politics. Hi. Hi, David. Um, It's good to be on this podcast with you. That's great. Uh, We are joined with our two guests, uh, colleagues specializing in international political economy. We have Ronan Palan, professor of international politics. Hello. And Sandy Hagar, Senior Lecturer in International Political Economy. Hi, David. Uh, And we all work at the Department of International Politics at City University of London. And if this was six months ago, we would all be sat around a table in the beautiful Northampton uh, campus of our university talking about politics. But because of the global pandemic, we are all currently in our various kitchens and bedrooms and offices. Uh, So it comes as no surprise that we're going to be talking about the coronavirus. Specifically, today's topic is going to be about COVID-19 and global inequality. But before we get into our discussion, Constantine is going to reach into the city glass bowl and ask our guests a series of yes or no questions related to this week's topic. All right, so welcome to the city glass bowl, which is what we're going to do in this podcast to get the discussion started. In order to make the the most of our experts' uh, expertise and knowledge, we will try to condense as much information into as little time as possible. So I will ask them 10 questions about the future uh, and they have to answer yes or no, nothing else. So are you guys ready for the City Glass Bowl? Ronan, are you ready? Yes, I am. Sandy, are you ready? I'm ready. All right, so let's start with Ronan and question number one. Will the pandemic be over by August 2021? Ronan, what's your answer? I think yes. Sandy, what would you say? I'll say no. Question number two, Ronan, will Corona kill globalization? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Sandy? No, I agree with Ronan. No. Question number three, will we watch football in fully packed stadiums ever again? Oh, yes, I think we would. Sandy, what do you think? Agreed here, yes, I think we will. Question number four, Ronan, will people on average be healthier two years after Corona? That's a very difficult uh, question because health refers to a lot of aspects of our life. I really don't know. I I think not. I think we'll be more or less the same. Sandy? I know it's a yes or no answer, but I'll say in terms of the the global average, I'll say no, we won't be healthier. Thanks. Question number five. Will Corona lead to more equal healthcare coverage, Ronan? No. Sandy? No. Number six. In the West, will poor people suffer more than rich people from the consequences of Corona? Ronan? Yes. Sandy? Yes. From a global perspective, will poor countries suffer more than rich countries from Corona? Much more. Yes. Sandy? Yes, I agree with Ronan there. Okay. Number eight. Will Corona make the rich richer and the poor poorer? Uh, No. Sandy? Globally, I will say yes. Yes. Okay. Number nine. Will Corona lead to more digitalization in the workplace? Ronan? Yes. Sandy? 
Yes. And the final question, number 10. Will Corona create some new major political cleavage? For example, expertise versus identity instead of the broad left versus right conflict that we still have today. Will Corona create some such new major political cleavage? Ronan? I, I, I think yes, yes. Okay, Sandy? I'll say no. All right, thank you so much. So, David, these are uh, the, the 10 the 10 responses, well, the 20 responses by two experts to the city glass bowl. Yes, and we've seen that there is a fair amount of agreement, but some important disagreements between our two guests. Uh, perhaps we'll start with the first disagreement uh, about when Corona will be over. Uh, Sandy, why do you think it's going to be continuing in August 2021? This is definitely not based on any sort of expertise on the topic, but in what I've read on how long it takes to, I think it all hinges on the availability of a vaccine. And if we look at historically the amount of time that it's taken to develop a reliable vaccine, this usually takes years rather than months. I think to have that administered globally by next summer seems a bit ambitious, but who knows, given the gravity of the situation, maybe, maybe it can happen. I'm just very pessimistic right now. Oh, so Ronan, why are you feeling optimistic about the pandemic ending? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm more optimistic about the vaccine. Uh, the meaning of the pa pandemic ending is, of course, uh, up, to, up to grab, up to debate. Um, the signs are that there are few vaccines out there that seems to be working. We already, uh, five of them are in phase three. Beyond phase three, we are going to, they're going to be approved. One, one might be approved. One already has been approved in China on a limited scale. So my Kind of my sense is that we are going to have a vaccine uh, probably by the end of this year, even earlier. There are also some drugs which are introduced, which are quite helpful. But uh, the epidemic is going to be with us. It's going to be with us now forever. But I think it will not have this kind of effect that we had so far that effectively close the whole world economy. I, I agree. So the idea that we're going to have a vaccine seems to be plausible by the end of the year. But this, I think, is a really good way of talking about global inequality, uh, because if it's developed in the West or the global North, as it almost certainly will be, I would say, based on where the pharmaceutical industry is located in the world, uh, who gets it, right? I mean, I can see it being distributed in the NHS uh, in the UK or in America by private health corporations. But the majority of people in the world don't live in the global north. Uh, they live in middle income countries, developing countries, uh, less, least developed countries. Uh, so how do we think that the politics of vaccine are going to connect into the uh, issue of global inequality? I think uh, uh, to, 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 be, to think about it, we need to think, I think, to expand the notion of inequality. The notion of inequality that we are talking about is normally refers to um, unequal distribution of financial assets. Of course, income, unequal distribution of income is quite important, but when you talk about when you factor in cost of living worldwide, the unequal distribution, of course, is not so significant. But we're talking about unequal distribution is normally we refer to financial assets, to wealth. But actually, I think what COVID, what with COVID discovered is other sort of inequality, which plays into the, your question. And first of all, there's a link between wealth and, of course, space. Um, when we have now 7.8 billion people on Earth, we find that there's access to 
not only the resources, but space is limited. So for instance, the concept of social distancing, it's a very Western notion, okay? We can have, we have our, our location and we have our space, um, which we can close down. Many of us have that. There's no social distancing in the favela in Brazil. There's no social distancing in Mumbai, in the slums. Uh, you just don't have, people don't have, in many places of the world, people don't have this access to space where you can social distance. That's what we have learned. So distance, space itself is at premium. Wealth is linked to space, to your ability to control space, create a boundaries. That's something. The yeah. second is, it's linked to the distribution, and that's, which I think is much more important in the 21st century, there's a link between wealth and age distribution as well, okay? So rich countries or where there's wealth, people live much longer. Whereas in poor countries, of course, there's a life chances are much lower. And this, is, this has been playing very well or very interestingly in COVID, okay? So there was a study, for example, in Mumbai. Now they estimate that in the slums in Mumbai, 60% of the population already got COVID. I think that that's so, an excellent point. Uh, yeah. One of the things that it really brings home is how our sort of reaction to COVID-19 has been extremely Western-centric in the way it's been developed, right? You know, the idea of social isolation, as, as you say, works really well if you have a lot of people living in suburbs, right? If you are living in separate housing in the sort of garden suburbs of a city like London or Toronto or New York, it's easy to stay apart. Also, single-generation households. You know, most households in the West are not multi-generational. Uh, apart from sort of parents and children, they don't have grandparents. They don't have multiple generations. Uh, and this is not the case in large parts of the world. Uh, so the way that we've conceptualized the virus and the way of fighting the virus has been very much looking at a specific uh, sort of uh, way of living, which is not a global phenomenon. Yeah, just to, I guess, jump on the back of that, what's interesting as well is not only is there sort of a Western-centric view of the effects of the pandemic, but there's also sort of, I guess, we don't take into account some of the inequalities that exist within the West as well and how that impacts the, the effects of the virus. So I think there was a study by the Office of National Statistics that shows that, you know, if you're Black or Pakistani or Bangladeshi, you have almost, you're twice as likely to die from coronavirus than than, um, than white people. And that speaks to what Ronan was saying about space. A lot of people think that it might have to be, be with the fact that um, people live in more um, crowded housing conditions in, in many of these families. There's also a problem of health inequalities as well. So yeah, the, the effects I think are always sort of unequal, whether we look at it as a difference between countries or between classes or different groups within society as well within the West. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that we lose track of when we think about poverty and when we think about inequality is what Maronan was saying, uh, that it's not simply about the assets that a person has. Uh, poverty, when we think about it, it doesn't really adhere to the sort of World Bank standard $1.90 a day uh, as a metric for us being over or above the poverty line. Uh, when I think about it, and I do a fair amount of research around the ethics of global poverty, people talk about vulnerability. Right, uh, And this is a story that you hear in the global north and in the global south. People who fall into the category of being in danger of poverty or being poor, uh, they can get through a day. You know, they will have a work, they'll have work that they can do, but their question will be, can I get through a week? Can I get through a month? Will I be able to get through the year? 
And coronavirus has really shown how vulnerable these people are because a lot of jobs can't be done remotely. A lot of people do not have stable employment contracts. They're employed on an ad hoc basis. And even though these people might be living, say, before coronavirus, above a poverty line, the effect of the pandemic is to drive them right underneath the poverty line because they do not have security. They do not have assets that they can draw upon to maintain themselves through a crisis. And this is a story that I think is more common than most people realize, both in the North and in the South. I wanted to uh, look at, uh, at an additional aspect of inequality that we haven't really looked at so far. We talked about inequality in, in two specific ways that are related to the virus. One is in contracting it, and the other one is in accessing a vaccine. It is based on that vaccine that Ronan was more optimistic about the end to the virus, despite the inequalities that both of you mentioned as well. But I wanted to look at a different aspect of inequality, and that's the political side of it. What, what seems to me uh, is uh, interesting in the case of COVID is that vaccination is also heavily affected by politics. Has there ever been uh, a situation um, where um, uh, the, the, the political aspect uh, uh, of talking about a cure to a disease essentially uh, has been so pronounced and possibly counterproductive? I, do, I, like, I don't know historically if we've ever seen these types of political divisions over a medical issue that we're seeing right now. But I think, you know, Constantine, you, you'd suggested that maybe the virus itself kind of brought up these tensions, but I think it's important to point out that at least in the United States, they were pre-existing, right? Like COVID didn't um, all of a sudden bring out these um, massive political divisions that we're seeing between, I guess, Republicans and, and Democrats. They were, they were there, I think what the virus has done has intensified and yeah, exacerbated a lot of those, those tensions that we've seen building up through, I guess, the, the Trump presidency and even beforehand. So how does that interact with, uh, with other inequalities um, that, um, sort of, that we're more familiar with, economic inequalities, even if we measure them differently? Um, do they reinforce those economic inequalities or is this an entirely new sort of line of conflict? I, for me, I mean, I, I, I would say that it kind of reinforces those existing inequalities and makes them worse. If you look at, at least in the United States and to a lesser extent here in the UK over the last three, four decades, there's been increasing wealth and income inequality um, in both countries. And what research on health, the health effects of inequality shows is that wherever you have a more unequal society, particularly in the so-called advanced capitalist countries, then you usually get more um, negative health and social incomes. This is research by epidemiologists named um, Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson here in the United Kingdom. So I think, you know, alongside growing wealth and income inequality over the past few decades, we've also seen growing um, inequalities in, in health outcomes, more negative health and social outcomes in more unequal countries. And that just provides a sort of very volatile situation for when you do have the outbreak of a pandemic. I can add to it about the politics of the vaccine that you're raising, um, which is another fascinating story. So some of the leading uh, producers of, of vaccine are going to be the Chinese, the Russians, uh, the Indians, Indians as well. And I think there was a South African company that is a, in one of the leading ones. So I don't think the Chinese will allow any options, people not to be vaccinated. Simply not allow that, okay? 
Um, and I think both Chinese and Russians are likely to apply vaccine when they decide that politically it's useful for them and ask questions later whether the vaccines are useful or whether they are dangerous and so on and so forth. They effectively are going to use their own population or other population as a guinea pig for the rest of the world. That's another dimension that we, uh, I've, I've never encountered before, okay? Um, so, uh, I don't know what's going to happen in India. At the moment, of course, most of the vaccines which are, which are in phase three are being tried off in Brazil and in, in South Africa, partly because Brazil and South Africa have high infection rate at the moment, but also because you can do it there. So the politics of vaccine has, again, there's a fascinating elements to it, and it interacts not so, there's no linear relationship with the sort of inequalities that we discussed before. It creates complexities and outcomes that um, would have been very difficult to predict, say, six months ago. What I find really fascinating about, uh, about what you said, Ronan, is that I grew up hearing about how the state was in decline right? The neoliberal moment, we're going to outsource everything to the marketplace. And uh, the state will sort of retreat into its night watchman mode. And the world is going to become much more diffuse. Now, since the 2008 financial crisis, we've seen neoliberalism being shaken a little bit. And now with COVID-19, it feels like, you know, the state is roaring back. To flip back to our crystal ball question, uh, questions, and one of the points of disagreement between our two guest experts, uh, on the matter of whether the rich are going to get richer and the poor are going to get poorer, uh, Ronan, you said that uh, this is not going to happen. And Sandy, you said that it is going to happen. Uh, Sandy, would you like to tell us why you think it's the case? Yeah, sure. I can have a, have a stab at it. I think, I mean, if we look at what's happened so far in, in terms of the crisis, um, you know, the people who have been most impacted by it in the U.S. and the U.K. are generally people who do so-called non-skilled work, who you know, don't have the option or the luxury of working from home. They work in, in manual labor jobs. They've seen themselves being furloughed and they're in their pay cut or they've, they've lost their jobs altogether. Whereas people more in the top part of the distribution, you know, more professional classes, we've managed to be able to work from home without coming out of it relatively unscathed. And then above the professionals, you find the cases of the billionaire class, the ones particularly that own tech and pharmaceutical companies, they've done very, very well as, as, as a result of the crisis. You look at the headlines about how much, you know, Jeff Bezos' wealth has, has increased since the crisis. So I think, you know, again, what, what the, the pandemic has done is just intensify a lot of those trends that were uh, unfolding before the pandemic even hit. So I think inequality is, is inevitably going to increase. Ronan, uh, do you have a, a defense of why you think coronavirus is not going to exacerbate global inequality? Yes, I kind of uh, differentiate between long-term trends about income or wealth inequality. And there is some debate whether in the last few years, at least in some countries, say the UK, um, the trend has continued of income inequality and whether a particular event like coronavirus is going to change the trend. So I agree with Sandy about kind of the long-term structural forces that we see. And if I think five years ago, six years ago, um, only uh, 50, the 50 wealthiest in the world people had 
shared, uh, I think, uh, the same amount of share of, say, half of the world population. Uh, last year it was 17, and maybe next year it will be eight. Okay, so in that case, the trend that Sandy is describing, huge trend, huge wealth inequality may continue. But I don't see how COVID in and by itself will change any of the fundamentals of trends. That's what I mean by that I don't think it will affect, or I don't see how exactly it will affect those trends. So trends that have been already uh, in train before may continue, and those who haven't may not. I don't see how COVID is going to change direction in a very radical way this way or that. That's, that's basically why I'm saying it's not going to affect global inequality as such. I think that's a really interesting point. Uh, when we talk about COVID, I mean, over the past six months, because we have been inundated with this virus as it's changed the way that we live our lives and the way that we work, it's easy to lose perspective about the big picture, right? Uh, to look at the trends that have been occurring over the past 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. Uh, and we think about COVID as being this systemic earthquake moment that will change everything. But perhaps COVID isn't this. Perhaps this is more of a blip in the overall big picture. Is that where you're sort of drawing us, Ronan? Well, I think it will change a lot, but not necessarily in terms of the broad trends toward inequality, and depends which inequality we are talking about. Um, it may raise social issues or this kind of social and political question about inequalities that I suggested. Question of space, access to space, about age distribution and the like. That may, be, may play a much greater role in the future in our thinking and politics. But if, if you're talking about income inequality or, or, or wealth inequality, um, no, I don't think uh, that it will change those kind of much broader long-term trends. This is interesting because I think it, it sort of, if I square what Ronan said with, um, with with my point about the political consequences of Corona, I'm thinking of Corona uh, uh, in, a, in, in a similar way uh, in that it sort of, it provides, oh, from a political perspective, it, it sort of provides an opportunity for political mobilizers, but whether they will take that opportunity or not to fundamentally reshape things, um, where Ronan says, I don't think it's going to reshape things in, in, the, in the long run, which I think is a, is a, is a very good point. I think in politics, if you sort of spin that argument a step further and apply it to sort of the political consequences, then I would say yes, uh, it doesn't necessarily change those long-term trends. It offers an opportunity for political mobilizers to fundamentally reshape and change the nature of politics, but it depends on transformative leadership, whether that's going to happen uh, or not. What's different here compared to inequality is, is the fact that inequality is much more structural as a sort of as a factor, whereas these political dividing lines are much more dependent on agency. Maybe that's the difference between the two. At this point, our conversation moved from the structural impact of COVID on the global economy to how it's changed whose labor is valued and what it means to be essential. It does change the whole notion of unskilled labor, okay? So we had kind of a notion before COVID of a pyramid of people who are important to the economy society, and those who are less, less so. Those who are less so were at the bottom of the pile. There were the unskilled workers, um, which, for example, a country like the UK would not want to 
import anymore to allow them to join um, and so on and so forth. What we have learned during the crisis is that precisely those unskilled workers are the most important workers, okay? Whereas the rest of us, the middle classes and the rest, we stayed at home in their flats or apartments or houses or second houses, the people who made sure that the, the economy and society simply survives, we have food on our table, that all the basic functions over are those unskilled workers. They prove to be the most important. Yeah, that's and really a, a, a great point. And one of the things that I work on in my research is the uh, ethics of super irrigation, which is a $5 word for heroism. Uh, what does it mean for someone to go above the moral call of duty? And I thought it really interesting, at least in the first phase of the pandemic, uh, when the language of heroism was being used to describe people who were working at the Tesco, for example. What really sort of struck me as being interesting is that when I think about heroism, I think about something that's ultimately voluntary, right? So the classic example of a hero is someone in a war zone who throws themselves on a, on a grenade to save their companions, right? This is something that we would consider morally obligatory because no one is obliged to give up their lives, but we recognize it as being a good deed, something that's worth recognizing as, as heroic, even if it's not a, from the obligation of duty. Now, what troubled me about the language of heroism when it was used in the first stage of the coronavirus was that there wasn't an element of optionality. Uh, a lot of the people who were working in the Tesco, working in the frontline services, were people who were exactly in the position that they couldn't say no, right? These are people who don't have a tremendous amount of assets. They don't have a lot of options. They're often on a zero hour contract. And if your boss tells you, you have to come in, you have to come in. Now, if someone's essentially frog marched into a supermarket, uh, it becomes a bit hypocritical, I think, for us to go around and laud them as heroes. That's really interesting, David. I'm wondering as well if this sort of, the way that heroism has been used since the crisis is just a way to I guess, gloss over a lot of those fundamental changes that might be needed or desired. And that speaks to what we've been talking about in terms of the return of the state, about political leadership. You know, on the one hand, we see that the state has come roaring back. Um, the worries about deficit spending causing runaway inflation, those have obviously gone. We've got record-breaking deficits and you know, inflation hasn't really moved the needle whatsoever. We were told that government debts would cause runaway interest rates, and that hasn't happened. So in terms of fiscal and monetary policy, we're seeing the return of the state. But on the other hand, we're seeing sort of holding on to neoliberalism in a lot of ways. Like if you think about how state capacity has been outsourced to these private companies, particularly here in the UK, that's been utterly disastrous in terms of, of trying to to, I guess, respond to, to the pandemic. And, and also when we think about sort of the, the unskilled, so-called unskilled workers and how absolutely essential they are to the economy, we still hold on to this idea that, you know, we can call them heroes, we can clap for them in the evening, but when it comes to things like raising pay or improving their working conditions, everyone just falls silent on that. And I think this speaks to what Constantine, Constantine said, without any viable political leadership to show us, show us some sort of alternative to that, then I don't see how we're going to use this pandemic as an opportunity to really address some of those structural cleavages within society. So we seem to have an agreement that the state is coming back in a big way thanks to coronavirus, uh, but both Sandy and Ronan have said that globalization is not going to be a victim of the virus. Uh, so what is globalization <laughs> going to look like? 
moving forward. Globalization broadly, I mean, globalization means a lot of things. But to my mind, globalization belongs to one of those kind of structural trends that are much longer, you know, in, they've been around not for 10, 20 years. You can say they've been around for two, 300 years. And I really don't see uh, the genie back to the now, I know that there's this notion that the state and globalization are two incompatible, um, say, powers or forces, but that's not the case, okay? The state was always, uh, to run a global economy, you always need, a global economy fundamentally is exchange of goods, services, ultimately exchange of property titles on a global scale rather than national or regional scale. To do these kind of exchanges, you need a system of law, a system of sanctions that can support such a And that was always the state. So I never saw the state as incompatible or competing with globalization as such. What we've seen in this crisis is something that we have never encountered before, that the state can close an economy. The state can decide that everybody stays at home. The state effectively told everybody, you are under house arrest, okay? Um, that was something we didn't expect. But in terms of global, in terms of, log, you know, a long-term trends, I don't see a situation in which the production of goods and services. So, for example, let's take the UK. Most of the, at least the goods that we consume, from our food, clothes, most of the physical items that we consume on a daily basis arise somewhere else, more than 90%, okay? Now, I don't think the figures will, 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 will decline, say, to 10% in any, in any scenario. I cannot see any scenario of that nature. The scenario is, could be that some strategic uh, industries will, uh, there'll be some investment in those, but generally speaking, I think that that sort of level of globalization in which most of what you consume in terms of goods or services arise originally from another territory, another region, even another continent will continue. Yeah, I obviously agreed with Ronan when you asked the question initially, and I don't have much to add to that. I would say, yeah, goods and services, globalization, it's hard, as Ronan says, to put the genie back into the bottle. There's also financial globalization. And since a lot of this can be done with the clicks of a keyboard, there's very little incentive that I can see for a substantial rolling back of financial globalization as a result of the crisis or as a result of the pandemic. Of course, movement of goods and services and our personal travel, the things we associate with globalization in the short term, those are likely to be disrupted. But in the long term, I can't see the pandemic itself rolling back globalization. I think the one thing that could, that's kind of the elephant in the room in a longer term perspective is, of course, climate change and the potential of climate catastrophe, but that's a, a different issue altogether. So what about political globalization? Um, so Corona doesn't kill globalization, economic, financial, technological exchange of property titles. Ronan said we need uh, rules uh, in order to regulate or to enable, facilitate economic globalization. But those rules can be done uh, through sort of a global system of rules um, that's sort of the result of political globalization or they can be done in competition through trade wars and then sort of trade armistices. Um, so if corona doesn't kill globalization, maybe it will change the nature of political globalization. Is that fair to say? I don't think corona would. 
I mean, there, there is a scenario, and it's not doesn't seem unreasonable at the moment, that in fact the global economy will break down along uh, various lines. So the Chinese, there'll be a Chinese-dominated space. Um, there'll be a US-dominated. We'll see where Europe is. So there is kind of there is a possibility of returning to a variant of the 1930s in terms of large blocks um, trading internally but with each other internally, but not externally. So it won't be globalization. But that process or that danger arose from what we call populism. It was one of the effects of the crisis of 2008. I don't know how COVID may affect it. I cannot see how. I think to come back to kind of the question that I think um, David raised and, 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 and constantly about politics, um, you, you both raised correctly or said correctly that the state is roaring back, but the state is not roaring back simply for the hell of it. Okay? It's not that the state is, as I said, closed the economy, or for example, in the UK, the whole private medicine system was closed down in one afternoon, became nationalized. These are incredible changes. This didn't take place for the hell of them, for the hell of it. They took place for a purpose. And the purpose was ultimately, I think, to defend what I would call the middle class and middle class anxiety, okay? The world, we can, we, we, there's, there, there's now a new virus that can kill us and we need to protect ourselves. And the people who were not protected, as we said, particularly in case like in the United Kingdom or Germany, kind of in advanced countries, were the zero house workers. And that comes to the politics now. Will the state, the state showed its power, it can do a lot. Will it now do the next thing? Will it now affect a redistribution and re-understanding of roles in society, and understanding that those people who are, we thought of as unskilled, unnecessary, are in fact the most necessary people. Just imagine um, going into a into hospital where there are no cleaners unclean hospital, okay? Just imagine that. Um, whether there'll be some leadership or political force that will say, okay, so now we know that the state can do a lot. Can we do something about that? Can we do something about those deep, deep inequalities that we are accustomed or not? I'm pessimistic about that, okay? Yeah, I mean, I think to jump in on that, one of the things that really will make a difference about whether there is a change in the way that the state enacts redistributive policies is about organization. And one of the things that differentiates our time with perhaps politics, say, 60 years ago, is the decline of unionization in the workplace. Uh, when we talk about cleaners, when we talk about people who are on zero-hour contracts, uh, we're talking about people who generally don't have representation in many political districts, especially in the United States of America, uh, if these people can't get together uh, uh, to put forward their interests, both politically and in the workplace, then I'd be very skeptical that anyone will do it voluntarily. Uh, sort of necessity is perhaps the mother of public policy in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's absolutely crucial. Sort of the issue of worker organization. And if you look at some of the recent work of the economist Branko Milanovic, he's incredibly pessimistic on this point. So he, he points out that unionization is almost perfectly correlated with the level of income inequality in a society. But then 
He also points out that things like technological change and globalization, these have been increasing alongside inequality as well. And those two factors make it very, very difficult for workers to organize in the first place. So if you think about workers in the gig economy, people who have become essential in, in terms of the delivery services that they offer, it's very hard for them to organize versus you know, the industrial worker in the factory in the post-war era. So I agree the, the issue of worker organization is absolutely crucial. The interesting thing is like, how do you get workers to organize, not only in the context of a pandemic, but also when we've got technological change and, and globalization as well? Let's take stock of some of the changes that have, I mean, policy changes that have actually, I think I have actually taken place. I, I think I agree with Ronan that that doesn't amount to a wholesale sort of change in the way in which we look at lower skilled labor. Um, but some changes have actually taken place. For example, slaughterhouse workers in Germany, um, they're now, uh, there's, a, there's a minimum wage requirement for them now. Uh, they're not allowed to be paid on, on uh, limited contracts anymore. Um, there is uh, there has been an increase in pay for people who are um, in the in the in the young childcare sector. So they, these are just two two minor policy changes. But do you think that these sort of policy changes will accumulate over time to change the the sort of the, the status of these lower skilled workers, or is it just sort of um, is it just sort of like a way for people who are better off to sort of to make themselves feel better a little bit with no real fundamental change. What do you think, Sandy and Ronan? I think, I mean, in terms of fundamental change, I think it um, goes back to what you were saying earlier, Constantine, about political leadership. And I don't mean to sound overly pessimistic, but if I look around, especially in the UK and the US, um, at the alternatives to the current rulers, I don't see a lot of prospect for fundamental change when I think of, of Biden and the Labour Party under Starmer. And so I think in order to have initiatives like that, not only continue after this pandemic is over, but also to you know, expand upon them and, and do something radically redistributive, you need political leadership. And at least at the moment, I, I don't see that on either side of, of the Atlantic. It's interesting what you're telling us about Germany, because those things, I haven't noticed any changes of that nature or even discussion in the UK. So, yes, I think there'll be some countries, um, probably in Europe, maybe in New Zealand, some countries that are begin, may begin to appreciate um, the role of what we used to call low-skilled laborers, the importance of them. It could be even um, that uh, there could be an economic incentive for change. So, for example, as people will consider in the future which kind of uh, all people's home they would like to go to, they may pay more attention to um, to the labor practices in that in, in that because it will it may cost them their life. Okay, so there could be an economic um, an economic incentive to change. It could come from that. I don't, see, I don't see that as a fundamental change, okay? I don't see kind of profound change in the world that taking place or in some countries, but it could be at the margins that the things that you're describing may take place, yes? Yeah, I sort of share Sandy's pessimism about the leadership in the sort of English-speaking world at the moment. Uh, Joe Biden, uh, Boris Johnson, don't really seem like politicians who are going to take radical steps to change inequality. But at the same time, since coronavirus, there has been a greater discussion of radical policy options, uh, most prominently in my mind, of the universal basic income, 
uh, that people like Andrew Yang in the United States have been advocating. And if we were thinking about 10 years ago, these were fringe issues, like super fringe issues that maybe a few people in a political philosophy seminar might be talking about. But now they're being advocated by some pretty prominent members of the Labour Party and the Democratic Party, uh, and in places like New Zealand and Canada, and to a lesser degree, Australia. So it is possible that perhaps this will be the start of a movement towards more moderate politicians like Biden, like Starmer, uh, appropriating ideas that used to be part of the radical left. Uh, but this might just be me being my normal, overly optimistic self. No, I, I, it's good to temper my pessimism with your optimism, uh, David. I think that's absolutely right. Like, if you think about the policy discourse surrounding UBI and also the idea of a job guarantee, I mean, that was becoming more and more popular in recent years, but definitely the pandemic has brought those initiatives to the forefront. So that's absolutely a positive thing. Yes, if I can add to it, because uh, there, there are signs of some more fundamental changes which are linked to coronavirus. And that was our, our basic conception was of the state taxing people, okay, in order to provide services, security or whatever. Here, we entered into a situation in which many countries, the reverse, the state now, instead of taxing people, use the tax system in order to maintain people. Ask them to stay at home, but essentially maintain the economy kind of in reverse gear, a bit like uh, those hybrid cars, you know, electric cars, which are using braking as a way of charging the battery. That's what the state is, did. And so the notion that the state there is not simply to provide services and compete with one another, but the state is there to provide fundamental human rights to people, the right to work, the right to live, the right to eat, is now, I don't know how deeply entrenched, but it was part of the discussion. If you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed on today's show, you can read Ronan Palant's new book, Sabotage, The Hidden Nature of Finance, co-authored with Anastasia Nezvitalyova. You can read more about Sandy Hager's work on his website, sbhager.com, sbhager.com. You can follow Konstantin Vossing on Twitter at K underscore Vossing. And you can find me on all social platforms as at GD Blunt. I'm David Blunt, and you've been listening to the City Politics Podcast, the official podcast of the Department of International Politics at City, University of London. Music by Cambo, and a big thanks to our producer, Atina Dimitrova. <laughs>